today, I'm calling just a little bit of an audible. I'm changing up uh, the schedule and the script just a little bit for our sermon series. I'm not changing the series itself. We just had a late question come in that I thought was very timely, I thought was very important, and so I hadn't planned on preaching on this, but I, I decided, you know what, this is that important that we've got to have this uh, on a Sunday morning for everyone to hear. So today's question is, what about the law? You see here we've got a picture of the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, your, the Ask Your Pastor series is already, uh, in my eyes, a success. I believe that one of the reasons why this question was asked late was because in this series we're developing hopefully a relationship between you and I where you feel free to come and ask me questions. Now, I don't have all the answers. I, I, I can guarantee you most questions, I'm going to be like, what? <laughs> like You're going to ask me this question. I'm just not going to know where it came from, what it's about. But I am going to honestly, I'm going to pray, seek the Lord, read his word, and do my best to shepherd you and pastor you into the answers that uh, I, I believe that the Bible gives, gives to us on any certain topic. And so uh, that's one of the main goals of this. Is it's, it's answering the questions, but it's also developing a relationship between you and I. Because as a pastor, um, pastors are called to live with the sheep. Pastors are not called to live in some high lofty place far away in a bunker somewhere to be protected except for on Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, if, you, if you go to the actual shepherds of the Bible, men like David and men like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, other shepherds, they lived with these animals. They cared for these animals. They, 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 they probably smelled like these animals. And they led these animals. When you read Psalm 23, when you read it from the perspective that it's written, David being the sheep and the Lord being his shepherd, he sits back and says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or be in want. He leads me behind, uh, beside still waters. He leads me to green grass. The idea is that there's this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep that 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 goes beyond just friendship, that goes beyond just a, a blood relationship. But it's this bond created by the Lord. And so I'm hoping that in this we can create that sort of thing. Not, not force or fabricate it, but allow relationship to continue between you and I and may the Lord be glorified in that. And so the question specifically today, is there a difference between God's law and his commandments I know we must live by faith. And here's the classic question. What do we do with the law of God of the Old Testament? We understand now that it's by faith that we respond to Jesus. But now we have all these laws, like like lots of laws. And, and they're coming out more and more uh, in this day and age um, with issues of, of human sexuality and that sort of thing. Um. Because many people will quote laws from the Old Testament to justify their position, and and then people on the opposing side will say, "Well, no, that's archaic. That's old. Uh, that was then. This is now." Well, what what are we supposed to do with the law of God? If we are supposed to live by faith, do we just discard the whole Old Testament? That seems a little reckless, and that seems uh, that seems wrong. But is that the truth? Let's, let's throw out what we feel, let's throw out what we think, and let's go to the truth of God's word. What do we now do with the law of God? I want to tell you right off the bat, this is actually very simple. What complicates it is our own human nature. 
how we perceive God, forgiveness, salvation, repentance, contrition, how we, re how we view all of that generally shapes how we see the Old Testament law. So instead of going into God's word, finding out the truth, and pulling from that to shape and, and be molded by it, we come in with our preconceived notions, ideas, and experiences, and we shape the word of God by it. And I'm telling you, that's where a lot of frustration comes from. That's where a lot of quitting comes from. That's where a lot of pain and lack of love and lack of freedom and burden comes from. When you go into the Word of God with your ideas to shape it and mold it into what you want, you end up just hurting yourself some way, somehow. Because God is not a God to, to semi-quote C.S. Lewis. He's not a God to be tamed. He, he's, not, he's not a God that we put into a box so that, that he's safe for us. God is very much unsafe. If you've been following the, the events... Uh, of, of Christians in the Middle East, you're finding that folks are, are dying for their faith. That simply for choosing Christ, for choosing to be forgiven by Him, they are losing their very lives. I'm here to tell you that Jesus did not die on a cross so that we can live a cushy life. He died so that we might be forgiven. And this life is painful. This world is hard. And it has good. Don't get me wrong. It's not all dark and it's not a dystopian type of environment where, you know, we're living underground and in bunkers. There, I mean, there is good in life. I love life. But I know enough to know that this is not it. That if you think that this is our heaven, then, then this is a very sorry, sorry form of heaven. That there is more beyond this. God cannot be contained. In essence, this whole series, when we ask God questions, it's a lot like trying to grab the, grab the tail of a lion and trying to hold on for dear life. As we ask these questions, as he answers us through his word, it, it, it just brings up so many more questions. Today, as I, as I hopefully answer this question, I, I seriously hope that a thousand more questions arise. What about this? What about that? What about this? Because the wheels of your mind have begun to turn. You're beginning to seek the Lord with your mind, as the Bible says. Some of you, some of you are very scared of the word theology and doctrine. It sounds so, so clinical and sterile. It sounds like we've taken a relationship and, and, and molded it into something that it's not. We've turned it just into an acquaintanceship. Don't be afraid of the, world, of the word theology or doctrine. You might even forsake those words, but that's your theology and doctrine if you do. Well, I don't believe in theology. Well, then that's your theology. I, I, I don't believe that we should pursue the Lord intellectually. It's an emotional, relational experience. Don't forsake one for the other. It's not either or. It's both. It's both an emotional and an intellectual pursuit. God will move upon you to where you are broken. You are crying. You, you, you reach out to him in love. You, you experience this great joy simply because he has forgiven you. But then also we study his word. We, we use the mind that he has given us 
to recall scripture, to, 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 to go back and forth between the Old and New Testament, to, to know the full body of God's word so that we're not lacking. No one, no one would ever, ever go to a doctor who said, you know what? Forget all these books. I just want to help people. For, forget studying. I just want to open up somebody's chest and fix their heart. Like, I don't know about you. Maybe you guys are a little more, you know, risk takers than me. I, I sit back and go, whoa, cowboy. We're going to find another doctor. I love your passion, but passion doesn't replace expertise. And so I want the doctor who has both. Now, we've been on the other side, right? Doctor comes in. Okay, yeah, we just got to lop off your leg and everything's going to be fine. We'll do it next Thursday. Be here at 930 and uh, we'll be done. We'll give you some pills and you'll be gone. And you're like, Whoa, Doc, you're altering my life completely. Like, I'm not going to be the same after this. How do I, how am I going to get around? Who's going to take care of me? Yeah, I don't care. It's not my job. I just got to, my part's just to amputate your leg. When you, when you have that experience with a doctor, you're left with that same feeling. Oh, the, um, intellectually, I know what's going to happen, but emotionally, uh, uh, what do I do? There's so many questions. When it comes to the Lord, it has to be both. Don't forsake emotion for intellectualism. Don't forsake uh, pursuing God intellectually for emotion. I don't, I don't feel anything. Yeah, but what are you learning? I haven't learned anything, but God is still there. Don't forsake one for the other. That's very important in this message. So what do we do with God's law? Turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. And that is somewhat where this, this question comes from. Verse 10 of chapter 3 is going to not answer our question, but it's going to help us to diffuse faulty thinking when it comes to the answer, when we get ready for the answer. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says this. For all who rely... And that's the big word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. I hope you caught that. That those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Let me give you some backdrop to, to not only the book of Galatians, but the book of Hebrews, the book of Romans. Uh, Paul, at least in the Romans and Galatians letters, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, one of the problems that he is having or, or did have with the church he was writing to is they kept trying to pull the sacrificial system, the, the, the ceremonial law, from the Old Testament into the New. So rather than resting in the completed works of Jesus, instead of relying on the works of Jesus, they were relying on their own works to justify themselves, to, to make themselves right or righteous before God. Paul had to go in and diffuse all of that. He had to destroy and deconstruct so many false mindsets to get back to the foundation of Jesus and begin to build up again. 
in Galatians, in Romans, in Hebrews, we get a, a glimpse into the mindset of the, of the Hebrew, of the Jewish person in regards to God. Because their whole way of thinking, their whole way of pursuing Jesus, because they have fallen into a, a, a system of religion, has been obliterated. The way they understood coming to God was, was once, a year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, making a sacrifice at the temple. Not, not having your sins forgiven, just having them covered by the blood of this, this perfect spotless lamb that you might bring in. And what they struggled with is that one day a man came who's more than man. He's every bit man, every bit God. His name is Jesus, and he died for our sins. Has anybody ever forgiven you for something that you actually did, and you just want to make it right and they won't let you? It's almost as frustrating as, 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 as trying to justify yourself. You know, you break something, oh, I'm sorry, I want to replace it, and there's like, no, that's okay. Don't even, don't even worry about it. It's okay. And I just want, I just want to make this right. I want to, I want to do something. Our very human nature, ingrained in our very being, is this feeling, this desire to, to do something to make things right. And when you're convicted of your sin, whatever that sin might be, when you're convicted of that, you realize, oh man, I got to do something to make this right. I cannot simply sit here. I gotta light a candle. I gotta read a something. I gotta, I gotta go somewhere. I gotta stand a certain direction. I gotta offer prayers at certain times. Uh, and, and then, then maybe God will forgive me. See, Paul had to, to write to them to deconstruct all of that. To get all of that out of their head. To show them, no, look, see, there, there's, there was a reason and a purpose for the law, and now the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. So early in the 20th century, there was a law passed in our country that outlawed drinking and alcohol, right? I believe it was the 18th, uh, whatever, amendment, thank you. Um, and I could be wrong, but somewhere in there. Amendment to the Constitution to outlaw drinking. Well, that didn't go so well, right? Bootlegging, flourished and people were making alcohol in their bathtubs and all kinds of stuff. People were going blind because nobody knew how to make alcohol the right way. People were being poisoned and all that sort of thing. God's out a hand that the American government had to repeal that to, to make a new amendment disqualifying the old amendment. Some people think that's how the Old Testament and New Testament work. God created the Old Testament, that God gave us the history of the Jews, only to, in the New Testament, eliminate the Old. That is not how it works. That is not, the, the if you read the Bible from beginning to the end, that's not how it goes. And if that's your mentality, that's why there's a lot of discord when it comes to what to do with the Old Testament. Instead of it being repealed, instead of God just saying, eh, that doesn't count anymore. Jesus comes. At the perfect time, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, as a human, into human history, he comes so that he might fulfill the law. Now, what if the American government, in creating this amendment to the Constitution, that there should be no more alcohol uh, production or consumption, what if the result of that was nobody wanted to drink anymore? 
then you would say, ah, the law has been fulfilled. But the law was not fulfilled. It had to be repealed because human nature wants what it wants. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, the Old Testament doesn't count anymore. He came to fulfill it. He finished it. What God had begun in the beginning, he finished on the cross. But that still doesn't answer our question. What do we do with the Old Testament? Even if he finished it, what do we do? Here's what we do. We're going to look at it in a certain way. In a way that we, I, I want to say humanly, this is how we, we look at it. We don't, we don't see this expressed in the Bible. But as you read through the, the, the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament, they can generally be, di be divided up in about three different categories. Moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. And so each one of those were given by God to the Jewish nation. And we're going to look at them just a little bit each. We're going to see how they apply to our lives and how to rightfully use the law today. So number one, ceremonial law. This is the the laws of the Old Testament that are completely fulfilled in Christ. How do we know this? It's the reason why we don't have to sacrifice a lamb when we come together on Sunday mornings. It's why not everybody brings livestock in with them to church on Sunday to make a sacrifice and atonement for our, for our sins of the week. Um, I praise God that I was not born a Levite because those guys just had to kill things all of the time. Blood and cutting and burning and I just... No, thank you. This is much better. I enjoy being a pastor where I don't have to, to sit down with you. You bring the lamb, and then we got to go together and sprinkle blood all over the place. Like, have you ever, like, cut meat, like, from the store? Like, I've got gloves on, and I've got bleach everywhere. Like, I'm looking uh, – we're not catching salmonella or E. coli or anything. Like, we're going to stay safe. I can't imagine that being my job where, where you'd come up, and, and i got to – dip the blood on your earlobe and your thumb and your toe and sprinkle it on the altar. Like, no, thank you. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, man, I'm glad I was born at this time and in this age. But these ceremonial laws, these are the ones where you read and bring pigeons and bring lambs and sacrifice them then and sacrifice them at this time. That is their identifying marker. These ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross fulfills any need to ever sacrifice anything ever again except ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, make yourself a living sacrifice. Present yourself on the altar. You know, it's no, it's no longer these the, something else being your scapegoat. Jesus has been the one who has taken your sins. Now lay yourself on the altar. Ceremonial law is fulfilled in Jesus. This, this includes festivals. Now, there's a great movement amongst some Christians, and they're not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters, and, and we can love them and pray for them. And they'll tell you that you must observe the festivals of the Old Testament. New moons and Sabbaths and Pentecost and, and Passover and all this other business. Jesus would have done the same thing. Well, Jesus' family also sacrificed animals, but we're not doing that, are we? Here's the thing. Can you, can you celebrate Passover and, 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 and Sabbaths and, uh, and 
tabernacles and Pentecost? Of course you can. Can we celebrate Hanukkah? Sure. Do you have to? No. Can you enjoy light candles? You do all that stuff. But it's not required of you. Those, 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 all of that is found in Jesus. Those were shadows of who he is. When, when, we, when, when the Jews celebrated the Sabbath rest, it was a foreshadow of the rest that we find in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's ceremonial law. Hebrews 10 and 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Long story short, Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial laws and festivals were shadows of the one who was to come. And to try to use those to get closer to God, it will never make you any more perfect than being in Christ Jesus than being found in him. Number two is the civil or the judicial law. These were laws that were given to uh, the Jews as a nation. They were laws for them as a people. They were governmental laws that today we could copy them. We can look at them and say, hey, that's a good punishment to fit that crime. No, when we see that that a, a, a man or a person, if he should injure a woman and cause her to miscarry, that he has indeed murdered somebody. He's murdered a life, even though that life was still inside the woman's body. These are, these are good examples. They're framework. They're, they're great law, but they were given for the Jewish nation to become a system or, or a place or, or a government. Under this, you, you could put the Ten Commandments, things like do not murder, you know, do not commit adultery, that sort of thing. But here's what I would say. If, that, if you do that, you are now limiting things like murder to only being penalized from the time that Moses gives it from the mount until the time of Jesus. And so what you have essentially said is that murder is only bad then. That when Cain murdered Abel, that it wasn't, it wasn't against God's law. That when Moses killed uh, the Egyptian or the, uh, or the person who was persecuting uh, his people, that that wasn't wrong because the law to give, you know, to thou shalt not murder hadn't been given yet. No, murder was wrong before and murder is wrong after. But in setting up this, this governmental system for the Jews, these were the laws that he gave. And so these are the laws that they followed. And we can use them, we can use them as framework for our own law today, but they are not binding upon us as as Christians. Lastly is the moral law. Before I go there, go back to judicial law. So Exodus 21, chapter 28. Okay, turn there real quick. I'll give you a quick example and then we'll move on. Exodus 21, verse 28. Exodus is the uh, second book of the Bible. Right after Genesis, right before Leviticus, verse 21, verse 28 says this. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner also shall be put to death. 
If a ransom is opposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now, for some of you, there's, a, a, there's an immediate disconnect, for all of us, basically, because none of us have any ox. Anybody here have an ox? No, you don't have an ox. So we read this and we just think, well, that's silly. Hey, I don't even have no ox. And so what do we do with that? Well, you can see the importance of, of human life to God. You can see how there is this idea of redeeming. But here's what I here's the, the point of all this. There are some who will say, well, that seems silly to me, so it doesn't apply. I want to tell you that that thought is dangerous. It's a slippery slope that begins unraveling the, the place that the Bible should have in your life. It's the argument used by those who are pro-whatever, pro-homosexuality or, 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 or freedom of sexuality, whatever you want to call it. They'll say, well, that, that just seems so old and archaic, but wait a minute, wait a minute. If this is God's word delivered by him through humans somehow, some way, because we don't understand it, does that negate it? Because we can't grasp the concept of it, that it seems like it's not culturally relevant, does that mean it's obsolete? No, it does not. God's truth, Jesus said he did not come to change anything, to fulfill it. He wasn't going to get rid of one jot or tittle. That's, that's the dot on the I, that's the cross on the T. Not going to change any of it. Just going to fulfill it. So you may not have any ox, but God's word's not to be dis, disrespected or, or excluded simply because we find it to be uh, non-applicable to our current time. We may not have an ox, but we might we might do things that hurt our friends and our neighbors, and, and there's there's ways to repent to them and give back to them, and 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 you see men like Zacchaeus who who's his whole life was bent on just cheating everybody out of money. Then he meets Jesus one day, and he gives back to everybody four times what, what he had stolen from them. So if Zacchaeus took 100 bucks from you, Henry, he gave you back 400 because he was that sorry because he met Jesus. He realized, oh, man, I'm the worst. And Jesus is really good. And I really hurt somebody, and I really want to fix that. I really want to be a part of making that right. So don't disregard something just because you think it seems silly. The moral law. The revealed will of God as to human contact bind uh, human conduct rather binding on all men to the end of time. This is more where the 10 commandments fall in line. Murdering, adultery, lying, stealing, these were all things that were wrong from day 1 and they will be wrong until day whatever whenever it ends. They are not limited by the delivery of Moses on the mount to the people. They are not fulfilled by Jesus, in a sense, uh, on the cross. They are still morals that we must live by. We cannot say that Jesus died on the cross, thus he's fulfilled. Thou shalt not murder, so now we can murder again. If you're wanting to do that, you need to seek professional help. 
that will not justify your lying. Now, some of you probably haven't murdered. Man, I don't know all of you, but I'm assuming most of you haven't murdered anybody. But some of you lie, and you justify the lying for who knows whatever reason. The My job makes me do it. I have to, or somebody will get mad, or I'll hurt somebody's feelings. People always think, well, if I if I can't lie, then I must always tell the truth. Okay, well, yeah, in a sense, but that doesn't mean you go and tell everybody they look ugly. I mean, you can still be nice about it. You can tell the truth and be nice. If, if, if somebody comes and asks you, do I look nice, and you think, my God, you look hideous. You don't have to say it like that. Especially if it's your wife. She will kill you. I, I'm serious. You can say something. You can find something to compliment. You can still tell the truth and still be nice and loving and caring. You can also say, you know what? Maybe that's my opinion. That's not the truth. Maybe I wouldn't choose those type of shoes or pants or do my hair up like that. But this person really likes it. So yeah, man, you look good. You you look like you look good. You know? You look like you're okay with how you look. Right on. So, so the moral law is still binding. The moral law still directs us and guides us. Now, the danger we have in this is becoming moralistic and not being like Jesus. To where we elevate morals above Christ. To where we become proclaimers of good morals rather than proclaimers of the gospel. My approach to many of you, whether it's right or wrong, I'll deal, the Lord will deal with me. But is to, if you have sin, I tell you what that is. You, know, that you should not be doing that or you will get hurt eventually. But I want you to meet Jesus. If you don't know Jesus today, me telling you what you are doing morally wrong will not help you if you still don't know Jesus. If you have not given your life to him, if you have not responded to his sacrifice in faith, you having good morals will do you no good. You, you being a really good sinner will not get you into heaven. It will not make you right with God. I need you. The Lord wants you to meet Jesus. I guarantee you, at least in my own experience, the only thing short of physical pain to change me has not been someone telling me, hey, that's wrong. It's been like, hey, do you know about Jesus? And I talked to him and, oh, I did that and that's wrong. And I don't want to do it anymore because I know what I'm doing is wrong. Can we as brothers and sisters in Christ point out things? Yes. And we should. Some people are afraid to do that. You know, the last thing I'm going to do up here is point out, you know, your guys' sin. Hey, you know, so-and-so, I know that you did this. Come out here. I'm going to parade you in front of everybody as an example. That's not cool. But if we sit down and we counsel and you tell me, you know what? Having a rough week. Why? Well, the, the, the lady I'm having uh, uh, an affair with uh, went out of town, and I just – I'm having a hard time. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Back up here. <laughs> Sorry you're having a bad week, but let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. I think we, we – I think we're being a little too subtle. we got to get to the deeper issue here. It would be bad as a pastor or as a shepherd to not do that. There are going to be times where you come to me with things that you think are okay. And I might be on the – I may be like, I don't really know. 
You know, there's things that I do that people will be like, you shouldn't do that. Like that music's too loud and too heavy. And there's like two guitars in it. You shouldn't listen to that. What are you talking about? They're singing about Jesus. Well, I don't care. It sounds like demons. Well, then go listen to, you know, what's the guy? Glenn Campbell. Go listen to him. Nothing against Glenn Campbell. Just saying. But if I teach you simply morals without giving you Jesus, you will have nothing. You'll just be a really good, Jesus uses this terminology, a whitewashed tomb. Really pretty coffin with dead bones inside. And that does no one any good, especially you, especially your family, especially your children, and especially this church. So what is the purpose of the law if there's... If, if, it's, if it's then, or is it then and not now? Is it, is it, was it for the Jews only? Both those theories are incomplete. Let me show you. This is, this is how I see, and I believe that the, the Bible teaches about the law. Because the law of God is perfect. See, we can't get out of that. It's the perfect law that reveals our imperfection and the need for a perfect Savior. That is the purpose of the law. If you read through the law, if you go and you're really adventurous today, I'm going to go to the Old Testament. I'm going to read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I'm going to read all the law. If you read through that and you say, nailed it. You read it wrong, number one. Number two, you are lying, so you broke like 500 commandments. And you're worse off than when you first got here. You should read that and say, oh, my, I, I am going to die. I am going to die because I did this and this, and I did that one twice. I do that one every Saturday. I, th this is all stuff that I do. This is my life unfolded. I lie and I've, I've stolen. And then you get to Jesus in the New Testament. Well, committing adultery physically starts in the heart. Ah, oh, now all of us men are, are all in trouble. Because it didn't just start, you know, you, you're scrolling down and, and there's something right there and you just stay there just a little too long and you know what you're doing. Oh, you did it! You sinned! Oh, I need... If you read through the law and you say, I need a savior, you've read it right. I need someone who's not me to make this right for me. And that's Jesus. The perfect law of God reveals that we are imperfect in needing of a savior, a perfect savior, and his name is Jesus. And now we see the Old Testament is not, or the, the Old Testament law is not archaic and old. It's setting a stage. It's building a platform for which the Son of God is going to stand upon to be seen by all people so that they might reach out to Him, to His outstretched hands, so that they might be forgiven. So that they might be in relationship with Christ. A lot of people preach, well, oh, it's relationship, not religion. Well, you have a really bad relationship with your Savior if you're not talking to him or communicating with him or reading his word or serving his people. If you're not doing those things, your relationship's a bad relationship. You have one. It's just not that great. If you have a relationship with your wife and, yeah, you're married, but you never see her and there's never times of intimacy and you never serve her and you aren't helping her around the house, I guarantee you she's not walking around saying, yeah, I'm married. I have a husband. I don't know what this is, but that's, that's how a foolish woman 
walks around when she has a husband like that. That's what that is, because the meds have just kicked in. No, that's a bad relationship. That's, that's a bad marriage. And a relationship with Christ like that, that's a bad relationship. And like all relationships, relationships get worked on. Now, we don't do all the heavy lifting. Praise God for that. He's the one who dies on the cross. He's the one who gives his life so that we can be reconciled. But the perfect law that is fulfilled in Christ reveals our imperfection and our need for Jesus. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law, or that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. James 1 and 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let me give you an analogy. How many of you wake up in the morning and ladies, you look like Snow White, men, you look like, I don't know, an attractive man. What, uh, fill in the blank, whatever. No, we wake up and we look horrible, right? Hair's all messed up. You know, you've been drooling on your pillow all night. Your beard's all like, well, my beard's all like this. Like, you gotta, you gotta fix yourself, right? How many of you go to the mirror and the mirror does the work for you? Mm, that doesn't happen, right? The mirror reveals what's happening. The mirror reveals how we actually look. Oh gosh, I gotta comb my hair, gotta fix this, gotta, you know, good thing I gotta brush my teeth, good thing the mirror doesn't reflect that, you know, you gotta. The word is like a mirror in that sense. We read it, it reveals that we are sinners. To walk away from that, saying, you know what, okay, I'm a sinner, and then just walking away is foolishness. To allow yourself to continue to be in sin, knowing that you are a sinner because the perfect law has revealed that, is, not, is being a hearer of the word only and not a doer of the word. A doer of the word is convicted by the mirror, by the law, by the word, and then repents. You see, repentance comes after grace from God. God grants you the grace to repent. To, to, to say, Lord, I, I am sorry, forgive me. I want to walk away from sin and towards you. The law, the law reveals our imperfection. It reveals our helplessness. Some of the hardest people to minister to are not sinners. It's sinners who think they have it all under control. That they're not helpless. Like, no, I got this. No, you don't. You don't have this any more than somebody who's trying to carry fire in their chest. You cannot, you are going to walk away from this and you are going to be hurt by it. And we're all going to have to sit back and watch you hurt because of your foolish decisions. Isaiah 64 and 6 says, We have all become like one who was unclean, and, our, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are all faded like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. One of the greatest things you can do, and we sing about this and I preach about it, is to simply surrender. To throw up your arms and say, Lord, I am helpless to save myself. I am helpless to make this right. 
What do I do? I submit to you. I surrender to you. Not to fight. I can make this right. And I can. No, I'm not that bad. No, 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 no. Nick's all that. What? Call it what it is. Be honest with yourself. True Christians are very honest with themselves and realize I, I just suck. And I need Jesus. That's that's what a true Christian, how they will see themselves after reading the word. And the perfect law reveals our need for saving. We need justification. We know that. We need righteousness. We know that. There's a standard. We know that. But how do we get there? Jesus. What is your response today then? Do you do nothing? And that's that's where a message like this, people get really scared. People who who are more moralistic than they are Christian, they get scared because they think that what I'm doing now is giving people the liberty to go and sin. And truthfully, those who are not committed to Christ are going to go and go into sin and feel less guilty about it because they are already sinners. And they didn't feel that guilty to begin with. But for people who hear this message, they hear the truth of the gospel, that, that Jesus has died for their sins. A genuine, authentic, sincere response is a contrite heart that is heartbroken over their sin, and nobody walks freely back into that sin joyfully. For folks who use this as their, their uh, get-out-of-sin-free card, I guarantee you they're not getting out of anything. I, I, I doubt their salvation. Maybe that's not my place, but I, I would say that if you're abusing and neglecting the Lord, then maybe, maybe you don't understand him, and maybe your relationship with him hasn't begun. Because you see him as a system and as a means to get out of the sin that you're committing, rather than the loving Father, God, Savior, Warrior, King that he is. So what is your response? Your response is simple. It's faith. Some wrongly use the word faith, and they'll tell you that faith is how you get stuff. I'm here to tell you that faith, when biblically described all throughout the New Testament, faith is for faith in Christ, not in what he can do, because if you don't believe who he is, what he can do doesn't matter. And if all you have faith for is what you want, that's not faith in Christ. I can have faith for a car all day. That doesn't change my relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? If I didn't know Christ, but somebody told me he can make me rich, well, I have enough faith to be rich. But that does not change my standing as a sinner. That does not change my standing as an adopted son or child of uh, son or daughter of God. See, I can have one without the other in that sense. But when the Bible describes faith, it's faith in Christ, what he has done, what, what he has performed on the cross, his conquering of sin, Satan, and death. Church, today, if you have faith to give, and Jesus said sometimes it's just the size of a mustard seed, but if you have that to give, don't place it in something so frivolous as a car or a job or a house or a relationship. Put that faith in Christ. It's like saying I have a dollar, I'm going to go buy a lotto ticket. Like you could use that dollar for something else. I mean, that's not the best way. You, could, you have just a little bit of faith. You're hanging on by a thread. Don't put your faith in something. Put your faith in someone. Put it in Jesus and what he has done and the works that he has completed on the cross. 
Turn to Romans one more time. Chapter 3, verse 21. And many of us know these verses somewhat, but very few chunks of Scripture encapsulate the gospel quite like Romans chapter 3, verses 1, uh, excuse me, uh, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The imperfect law, or excuse me, the perfect law reveals our imperfection, our need for a Savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus comes. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit into us. And we begin to desire Him and His ways and His laws. And the flesh may want to lie, but our spirit says, no, we can't without betraying Jesus. And the heart may want to lust, but the spirit tells us, no, not without betraying Jesus. And our heart might be to murder our neighbor through slander and through words, the intent of our heart has already changed, and, and the Spirit says no, not without betraying Jesus. But that all happens by faith. Do you believe what the Scriptures say today? Let's stand and pray. And today the challenge for you is what is your response? Do you respond in faith? Or do you res or do you just walk away? Yeah, but I when I was a kid, I, I said a prayer. Yeah, I, I get that, and that's a good start. But where are you today? When I was 12, I went to a church in Bakersfield, California with my grandmother. I gave my life to Jesus that day. And then the next day, I think I took it back. And then when I was 18, I started going to church again, and I got baptized. And didn't really do much. It wasn't until I was about 24 where, where Jesus was more than just a concept. Jesus was more than just facts in my head, more than just uh, this, this book that I've been reading or been trying to read. Jesus and, 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 and everything that he is became a part of me. It became real. That's the only way I can describe it. It's not like he wasn't real before that. That's why it's a sad way to describe it, but... It was that moment where my life changed. So some of you might say, well, I gave my life to Jesus at 12 or 15 or 18, and 
So I'm good. I got my golden ticket. I'm getting into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Um, I'm here to tell you that the best evidence of how your life uh, and where it's going is, is portrayed is in how you're living your life today. Are you living a life that honors Christ or are you living a life that is everything but? That, that to me, for myself, is my evidence in my life for where I'm going and how I treat Jesus and how I think of him. And so I want you all to stand. I said that a second ago. Nobody stood up. Stand up. We're going to pray. And we don't stand because any other reason than we're closing. So we're, gonna, we're just going to pray. And I want you to respond in faith. What does that look like? Well, it starts by, by repentance. Lord, I am sorry. But pastor, I don't have anything to repent of. Oh, because you're Jesus? Come on. You've got something to repent of. I know it. I, I, I've only been awake three hours. I've got stuff to repent of. But pray to the Lord. Lord, I am sorry. I, I, I see now through the law my imperfection. But also trust here. Now listen, hear me in this. Trust that what is needed to be done to make you right in the face of God has been done in Jesus. You see, because, because people who see their imperfection and then try to make it right by their own works, they become worse off. But people will say, you know what? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. These are the people that feel the freedom and the liberation of forgiveness found only in Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, I have said a lot of things today. And Father, I'm asking today that, that you would make sense of all of this. Indeed, this is both very simple and very complicated. Your word is so much bigger than our tiny little minds can accept. But Father, your word is truth, and your word tells us about your son, Jesus, who lived a sinless life to die in my place, in our place, because we are sinners. And your desire is not that we would die in our sin, but that we would find forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Today, Lord, for those who maybe have not given their, put their faith in Jesus, or maybe it's been a while since they have, today, Lord, may that be the day of their salvation where they give their lives to you all over again. That today would begin a journey where you become real. Where the relationship that is daily and hourly and minute by minute exists. That you no longer are, are an afterthought or something to, to think about next Sunday morning. But Father, that your life and our life become knit together. Your word says that you've come to give life and life abundantly. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. That's the life we desire, Lord. That's the life I desire for your people. And we don't find that through the law and performing that. We find that through faith in Jesus, for he has performed it all and done so perfectly. Jesus, you are good, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.